Thanks for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. Good to see some people back from holidays. The Gallagher's are back with us. They've been travelling all over the countryside. I saw the Gilchrist here. I think you've been away a bit too, have you guys? Good to have you back. It's really great for Deb and I to have our youngest son, Josh, with us here this morning. He's our youngest, our tallest. Uh, the more kids we had, the taller they got. Uh, but it's great to have Josh with us. And uh, uh, it's good to see Terry with us. Uh, Terry has uh, had some fairly major surgery during the week, so good on you for being here. We continue to pray for your healing and uh, recovery. We need to continue to pray for the Dequinos. We had uh, a small gathering here early in the week for little uh, baby Ezekiel passing, and uh, it's a very difficult time, for, as, as we all know. We continue to pray for them. But, uh, as a family, that's what we do. We stand together. We walk together. And uh, so, very exciting. Uh, as Ben mentioned, next week we've got Andrew Cabal here, so that should be fun. It'll be exciting, as always, with uh, Andrew Cabal. There's a few things happening around the place. In case you're wondering what that big pile of stuff is in the foyer when you came in, that's acoustic treatment that will be on the ceiling sooner or later. So that's going to uh, help our, our kind of noise challenges in the in the foyer there which is good and uh, in, in the next little while we're going to have some carpet on this stage so that will change things as well so uh, apparently that will help acoustically and all sorts of things so um, a few other little bits and pieces happening around the place which is good it's all good but uh, today we're finishing out uh, the uh, we've been doing our series on um, uh, we're working through over the spring season the book of Joel and the reason that this uh, kind of impacted me this Old Testament prophetic book of Joel was I just kind of love the sense of optimism that was in this book and the, and the reminder of what God has done for us that is in this portion of scripture but also the truth and the reality of certain things that God has done for us that we are reminded of in this scripture the pouring out of the spirit is prophesied and foretold in this, script, in, in this, in this book but in, in this month of uh, October which coinciding with uh, mental health awareness uh, week in the uh, month of October. We've been talking about uh, restored from shame, which is one of the promises uh, that we kind of uh, read about in the book of Joel. Last week we had uh, the psychologist um, Greg Powell here. That was helpful and challenging and uh, informative and I, I hope that it helped you um, because uh, as, a, as a Christian psychologist and just having a conversation with him, he was probably more provocative in the night service than he was in the morning. So, But it was, you know, what we want to do is be able to uh, ha have conversations around the things that, uh, that we are dealing with as in our humanity and in society, uh, but ultimately remembering that Jesus has overcome all of this in his humanity. But one of the key things, and I just want to wrap up this, uh, this particular month about being restored from shame, uh, is, is the reality of, of... I want to have a look at what shame is and how, we, how we've actually been restored from it this morning and uh, the importance of that. And uh, because 
the overarching theme is generation to generation. And so we're reminded in the book of Joel of what God has done and how he has taken a people from a place of slavery and, re- and set them free and uh, empowered them for the future. And sometimes we forget that. And just as it was for the children of Israel, it is for you and I. We sometimes forget the reality and the power of what Jesus has done for us. And so when we read the scripture about being restored from shame, <clears throat> what does that actually mean? So I'm going to uh, share some thoughts with you about that this morning. Shame is something that we all have. Uh, we're afraid to talk about it. And the less we talk about it, the more control it has over us. Uh, we've all probably heard that phrase, shame on you. And maybe we've had that spoken over us at times in our life. But uh, it's, uh, the truth is that we all carry a certain degree of shame. We've all seen, heard, said and done things we should never seen or heard or said or done. And we've all had things said and done to us that should never have been said or done to us. And, but these are the things that give birth to shame in our, life, in our lives. When I think back you know, uh, over some of the stories and my personal encounters with shame, it's, it's a very um, sobering path to go down. It's almost like I find myself thinking, I actually want to ignore some of those things that happened in the past. I can remember as an eight-year-old leaving uh, leaving our, our village in, on, in the coast of Devon in England, a place called Sidmouth, to come to Australia, which was uh, all I knew about it was a book I'd been given about um, Australia, and there was a lot of sheep out here, uh, and, um, and you know, didn't know much more about it other than the fact that I was leaving behind my friends, I was leaving behind my family, had no family or friends where we were going, and so that was kind of a challenging thing. But what, and so I remember driving away from the village of Sidmouth and, I, and my friends were in the street waving goodbye but I couldn't, I couldn't look at them because I didn't want to see them, them to see me crying so I just was in the back seat just waving out the back window like this so they couldn't see that I was crying. And, and, but it sort of... So then we landed in Australia and I found that, okay, as a pommy kid coming to Australia, we didn't fit. And so we went into a school for three months and then we moved house again and we went somewhere else and had to start school all over again. And so I found myself navigating the challenge of not quite fitting where we were. And then we decided to, after five years, that, that maybe Australia wasn't quite cut out for us. So my mum in particular was quite homesick, so we went back to England. And so started another school again. Uh, this is the third or fourth school in a, in a couple of years, in a, f- a few short years. And, and then all of a sudden, I wasn't, I wasn't a pommy back in England anymore. I was now an Aussie, but I wasn't an Aussie when I was in Australia. I was a pommy, and so it was kind of like all of this not fitting kind of thing. And uh, I never felt like I fitted in. And uh, I can remember when we went back to uh, England that... uh, uh, it was the end of my first year in high school, and so friends had thrown a party, a, farewell, a surprise farewell party for me, and, um, which was nice in itself. But I remember, and it was in a friend's house, and I remember coming down the stairwell and overhearing a conversation between a, a 
what I thought were my friends and they said, oh yeah, we don't really care that he's going, but uh, we just wanted an excuse for a party. And I'd overheard that conversation and so that kind of reinforced this sense that I didn't really feel like I fitted in anywhere. And so going back to England, I didn't fit in there. And so, you know, I, I can remember just working that through. I remember, uh, so then we came back to Australia again and, and started the whole you know, journey all over again. And a couple of years later, when I was 17 years old, in my last year at high school, was when I became a Christian. And it was, I can remember somebody saying to me at the moment of my salvation, uh, welcome home. And I, and I felt for the first time in my life that I actually fitted in somewhere. And somebody gave me a Bible and they wrote in the Bible, welcome to the family, you're home now. I've still got that Bible, I've still got that thing. And, and it was kind of like, I fit it in. And so, you know, the, the shame of not kind of being fitting in or all of that sort of stuff uh, was, was there. And it was um, just part of that conversation. And then telling my parents that I actually became a Christian gave me, there was a sense of uh, distance that came between my parents and myself because they had no idea. They didn't understand what I was doing. They thought I joined a cult. They literally thought I joined a cult. And so, uh, you know, to their credit, they went to talk to the people of the, the uh, youth uh, group that um, I sort of connected with and uh, tried to make a connection there. Uh, and and it, it was like this sense of never really f- realizing that I, that I fitted in. But I just knew that my connection with God was the thing that was going to keep me grounded and keep me moving forward. I remember a few years, uh, few, probably five or six years after I got uh, saved and at this point in time married and maybe one or two kids, and I, I, I found myself going to a, uh, um, this renewal retreat in Newtown. It was held in a monastery, and for some reason or other, I decided to go. I, I'd heard about this renewal thing that was happening now. I just wanted to be a part of it. I'd always just wanted to be a part of what God was doing. I never wanted to miss out, and I always kind of had this sense, God's doing more. God's doing more. God's got more to do. And really, that's the story of Joel. We read, in, and we're going to f- uh, discover that next month, but there's this sense of God actually wants to do to do more and so I've always had this thing okay I don't want to miss out on what God wants to do and so I find myself in this group in this monastery with a bunch of mainly old ladies and it was like it was weird I like God why am I here but I felt like I needed to be there and one of these ladies when we pray uh, she her teeth would chatter when she was praying in tongues it was the weirdest thing and then I just remember bursting out laughing to myself at one stage because I thought she hasn't got the gift of tongues she's got the gift of teeth you know and it was just just bizarre things going on my brain but I remember getting prayed for by those women in that in that monastery or whatever it was at the time and I and I in a specifically a specific ministry moment and I felt this like this knot in my stomach just completely unravel and untangle and release and there was this sense it was I I look back on it now and I think that was a moment of deliverance from me for me but I wasn't even sure what it was that I'd been delivered of and then a few years later I discovered that I was uh, my presence on planet earth was a part of a scandal so my parents were upstanding moral people uh, but I had actually been conceived out of wedlock. And I didn't know that until my cousin told me, and I'd had two kids of my own, and I 
did the math, and I, whenever I'd done the math before, I thought that uh, I was born prematurely, but I wasn't. It was <laughs> just the way that my brain thinks. And, uh, and so, and it was a bit of a scandal, apparently, so my older cousin was, had told me. Uh, and then, and so th- there was that sense of, because I think some of the things that can happen to us, even in utero, uh, actually shape so is this sense of I did, maybe I didn't quite fit in even then and then and then my parents told us the story in fact my dad told us the story after my mum passed away of when uh, I was a newborn baby and they bought the house next door to a church and uh, it, was, it had been the manse of the church but the church had to sell it or whatever and so my parents bought it and they wanted to become part of the church and so they rock up with me in a pram at the church and the church was really uh, dirty at my parents for buying the house and they didn't want us there and basically told us that and so my parents never went back there again and so you know, I, I kind of realize that maybe some of these things, a, a sense of shame and stuff that has happened in my past, a part of what, uh, the, you know, the deliverance moment that I experienced when I look back. <clears throat> and then I had a conversation with my dad, who's um, 87 now. We're still praying for his salvation. He's uh, now uh, kind of uh, experiencing some renal failure. Uh, but I had a conversation last week when I went up with to visit him for his birthday. And he was telling me he'd had a conversation with a cousin of mine who's doing the family tree thing. And my dad's name is Roy Denby White. And he never knew where the middle name Denby came from. And it's an unusual name. But, it, but my cousin told dad two, uh, two weeks ago that Denby was the name of... Uh, a, a, a person in, the fa- in our family tree, like my great-great-grandfather, who was a minister. And so my dad's mi- na- middle... He was named after the minister in the family. And so even though they kind of pulled away from church because they had a really negative experience with it, and then all of a sudden, their son, my dad's son, which is me, <laughs> just to make sure you're clear on that... Is a minister, and uh, you know, I just look at the way that God kind of overarches all of this stuff. None of it is a mystery to Him, and so uh, you know, I just think about how God kind of so things that were shameful for me that I was carrying and dealing with in the area of shame, God is restoring and has restored. And some of this stuff takes time. I can remember early in the ministry, in our vocational ministry uh, at Kingscliff, when we planted the church, that uh, we had uh, maybe 20 people in the church, and uh, six of them were us, our family. Uh, so, and you know, we went to um, a, a bigger church uh, up the up the road, and so, um, you know, and it was it was kind of like. Oh, maybe I'm not cut out for the ministry. Maybe this isn't for me. And what am I doing here? And then, uh, and then um, uh, there was a, an uh, over, um, American prophet from overseas. He was ministering there. And so they called forward all the pastors to come forward. And it was like, 
oh, will I go? I've only got 20. It's only a connect group. It's not, I'm not really a pastor kind of thing, you know, just wrestling with it. And it's like, oh, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. You know, I'll step out in faith. And, but you're battling all the time this sense of worth and identity and all of this kind of thing. And, uh, but, and me being the sort of person I am, and because of my background, I just want to blend into the shadows. I don't want to stand out. You know, I just want to mind my own business and live happily ever after. It's not, <laughs> nothing wrong with that, is there? And, uh, so anyway, I, I thought, all right, I'll go out. I am a pastor. I, I suppose I am a pastor. I suppose God's entrusted some people to me. So I, I went out and, and stood on, on, on the altar. And, uh, and this guy prayed for everybody else, and they all went down, and, except for me. And then all of a sudden, I'm standing out the front of this church on my own, in front of everybody, and it was like, oh, this is killing me. I'm dying on the inside. And, uh, and, and it's like, I shouldn't be here, God. Like, why? like this isn't what it's about. And uh, I just remember... He, this guy prophesied over me, and it was such an accurate prophecy. I've still got it written down today, and it's still being fulfilled. Elements of it have come to pass, and some of it, and, and part of it is about who I am as a person, and part of it is what God is doing through me. But it, it was kind of like in that moment of what felt like complete shame to me, God spoke a word that has sustained me in ministry for nearly 30 years. And so, you know. The, the, you know, we get restored from shame. We get restored from shame. You know, and I, I, I remember thinking in, in the early days when we were still in Sydney and C3 Church opened up down the road and, and a lot of the pastors were kind of really edgy and out there, flamboyant sort of people. And it was, um, and we were in the Baptist church and we were leading the youth in the Baptist church and a lot of our youth left to go and be part of C3. And we, um, or Christian City Church as it was at the time, but we remained, we've, we felt that we went, were meant to stay where we were and be faithful to what God has called us to do. And so we, we kept leading the, the, the youth and the young adults at the time. And uh, eventually, and it was... Um, and I, I can remember thinking, we went along to a few meetings down there, and these guys were edgy and out there and doing all sorts of crazy things. And it was kind of like, I could never see myself being that sort of a person, you know. And yet here I am years later, I'm overseeing literally hundreds of C3 pastors. It's like, it's just what God does is incredible, you know. And it's like that whole sense of, what he restored when we get restored from shame, we actually don't realize what is, what is actually going on. And so I tell some of those stories because I want to provoke your thinking this morning. I want, I'm hoping that you're thinking in your world, maybe there's some things that still feel like the restoration is to come. It still feels like that for me at times. And yet I know that, uh, that, um, that the enemy has designed shame assignments for us to, to contain us. And yet God has restored us from shame and broken the power of it. And so... I'm here this morning to, and believing that God is going to set free people and restore us from shame. So let's just revisit our scripture in Joel chapter 2, verse 25 to 27 this morning, which is what we're coming out of. And it says, I will restore to you the years that have been stolen from you. And it goes on and talks, uh, next screen please, um, Eric, thanks mate, doing a great job, goes on to say that my people 
will never, and most translations say, will never again be put to shame. So he will restore what the enemy has stolen from us and we will never again be put to shame. And that statement is declared twice in this scripture because it's so important that my people will never again be put to shame. And the power of that is incredible. The power of that means that you and I have the ability to overcome shame. So what is shame? The thing about shame is that we all experience it and we are all dealing with it. Shame pushes us away from God and towards anxiety. We change when we realize how much God loves and values us despite what we have done. So shame tries to take us away from that reality and that truth. Shame is a powerful emotion that can cause people to feel defective, unacceptable, even damaged beyond repair. That's what shame says. You're no good and you're not worth it. Shame is a powerful emotion that can cause people to feel... Oh, I read that. Sorry. <laughs> you're reinforcing it. Um, there is a difference... I don't want to reinforce the shame. We're lifting the shame. There is a difference between shame and guilt. Uh, but they're, they're different, but they're related kind of emotions. Because with shame, you're told that you are wrong. Guilt says you've done something wrong. And there is a difference. There's a difference around that. When you feel guilty about the wrong thing you did, you can take steps to make up for it and put it behind you. But when you're um, feeling convinced that the thing that's wrong offers no clear way out and that's you that's wrong and you're a wrong person and you're, wrong, you're a waste of space and all that sort of stuff, it's very, very different. Brené Brown, who's done some stuff on vulnerability and shame and all that kind of thing, and I'd encourage you to read her stuff because it's very helpful, or listen to her TED Talks, but she says this, Shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. It's the fear that we're not good enough. Shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries if they, are if they are acknowledged and healed and don't happen to us too often. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. Shame says you can't change. God says you can. You're transformed. Guilt is a legal state. It's positional and so it can be dealt with. But shame is an emotional and a mental state and the process of reshaping our identity based on sin. With shame being an emotional and mental state, it's, it's like so much of the battle, so much of the war that we wage is in the shame, uh, the arena of shame and what, God, and what God wants to set us free from, but what the enemy wants to keep us contained in. Brené Brown says, the less you talk about it, the more you've got it. Shame thrives in silence. So what, that's what shame is. Now, where does shame come from? The shackles of shame hinder our relationship to God and others. Let's go to the, back to, to the very beginning. In Genesis 2.25, says this. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Before the fall, there was no shame. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. There was no shame. But the open... And that to me is the ultimate definition of paradise. No shame. 
not no clothes, but no, <laughs> no shame. <laughs> I know where you... <laughs> the ultimate definition of paradise is no shame. <laughs> no shame before God. And yet Genesis 3, 7, we read, At the moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. As soon as sin came in, shame came in. And that's the essence of what we're dealing with here. You know, the thing about it is, the fig leaf covering was man-made. But God sees through our fig leaves. There are man-made things, there are man-made fig leaves in your life that God sees right through. And he actually wants to set you free from the shame and the nakedness that, that you're feeling that, that you need to hide from. The thing about this is, the only thing that will cover shame is blood. Now, stay with me on this. The only thing that will cover shame is blood. We read on in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Because he's sort of saying, well, we need to cover you properly because uh, your fig leaves aren't cutting it. The things that you try to cover your shame with don't really cut it. But, the th but in order for animal skins to be, uh, for God to make animal skins, there had to be shed blood of the animals. Now that's what we call a type and shadow of Jesus and what he did for you and I. His, his shed blood covered our shame Jesus is our scapegoat and that's part of the covenant relationship that we have and I don't want to spend time going into that whole covenant thing but Jesus is our scapegoat and covers our shame in Isaiah 53 verse 6 it says this and God has piled all our sins <coughs> excuse me <coughs> everything we've done wrong on him God has piled all our sin on Jesus. That's an extraordinary thing to be aware of. In Genesis, we read about a naked man relating to, uh, related to a tree that brought sin into the world. In the Gospels, we read about a naked man relating to a tree that overcame the sin of the world. And so we realize that what Jesus did was set us free from shame and the power of that. So that's where shame comes from. It's the, it's the consequence of the fall. So the third thought then is, why is shame so damaging? So we need to get out from, the epi, from under the epidemic of shame. Shame is everywhere. And people are trying to shame us into doing all sorts of things. There are two lies that shame tells us. The first one is that we're never good enough and it attacks our worth. The second one is, who do you think you are? And it attacks our identity. That's why shame is so damaging. It attacks our worth and our identity. And we're never good enough. The painful feeling that we are all unworthy of love and belonging. 
And so just like a lot of my personal shame came from the fact that I didn't really feel like I fitted in, there's a sense that most of us carry a degree of shame around love and belonging and acceptance and the painful feeling that we're actually not good enough. And the, the, the other thought then around who do you think you are? It's identity. And the enemy is constantly whispering us and challenging us around who do you think you are? Well, who we are, we've been restored from shame because of what Jesus has done. We'll get to that. Three things that shame needs uh, to grow in our life. And it does grow if we don't deal with it. The first one is secrecy. The second one is silence. And the third one is judgment. If we've got these three things around our shame, then the shame will continue to have a hold upon us. We're secrecy. We're only as, you've heard it said before, we're only as sick as our secrets. And so, and the, and the, the remedy, the, the gospel remedy is to confess our sins one to another. And so we do that appropriately uh, and do it well, but we break the secrecy thing over it. And, and that's a powerful thing. Then there's the silence. Well, if we don't say anything, it'll just go away. But the, when we're held to silence, and silence and secrecy kind of, in a sense, go together, but we've got to learn what it is to be able to confess our sins and get it out there in the open. And, you know, the, the fear of judgment and retribution that comes if we open up about our shame and the thing that's happened to us or imprisoning us, you know, that causes it to be so we don't want the repercussions of the judgment that will come from what we think we're carrying. And so that keeps us in this place of damaging shame. A revelation, and because there's an accuser out there who's constantly saying, who do you think you are? You're not worth it. And we read Revelation 10 verse 12, and it says this, uh, <clears throat> For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who relentlessly accuse them day and night before God has now been defeated, cast out once and for all. There is a, re a relentless accuser out there who will take every opportunity to accuse you of your shame. Who do you think you are? What, what are you doing? What, you're a waste of time and space. You have no worth. Nobody would really miss you if you weren't here. All of these kind of lies are what we're up against when we're dealing with shame. The accuser who relentlessly accuses. But he has been defeated. He's been defeated once and for all, that scripture tells us. So we've actually got to access that truth and live out of that truth. And so we, it doesn't matter if we're being relentlessly accused. You know, I mean, we have all can identify with that thing on our shoulder that's whispering in our ear, telling us that we're not worth it and that our identity, you know, who do you think you are? And so that's why shame is so damaging, because it attacks our worth and attacks our identity. And shame keeps us in the prison of our sin. And that's why confession is so important. So then the next thing is, how do we break the shackles of shame? This is where our relationship with Christ comes in. Our worth and our identity come from Him. Romans 9.33 says this, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. If you believe in Christ, accept Him as your Savior and Lord, you will not be put to shame. 
the shame is defeated and broken off your life. So here's some things to help break the <clears throat> shackles of shame. Know your triggers. Know the things that trigger you in the shame arena and do something about it. Have a reality check. Have a look at your world and, and maybe see it the way that others might see it and get a perspective on it. So there are things that trigger us and there are realities that we need to be aware of. <clears throat> we need to actually talk to yourself like you talk to someone you love. So how about listening to our own advice sometimes? Because the, way, the people we love, we give good counsel to, hopefully. And so talk to yourself the way that you would talk to someone that you love to help them with things. Tell your story to the right person. Learn how to tell your story. If we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. Wow. You know, you tell your story to somebody and it's, it's like the, what? I, me too. I struggle with that just like you. And it's, it disempowers this shame thing that wants to get on you. Shame can't survive. And so, and responding with empathy is incredible. When you, when you, and if somebody tells their story of shame to you, don't respond by saying something like, oh, wow, I never thought that you'd be like that, you know. That's not a good response. It's kind of like, you know what, I, I actually... I haven't experienced that, but I can feel your pain. I can understand where you're at. And so we, we empathize and we do empathy well with understanding because shame can't survive in that kind of situation. If we share our shame story with the wrong person, it can easily become more of the debris that flies around in our world and, and, and is dangerous to us. But to the right person, and can I encourage you, be a right person for somebody else. Be empathetic in listening to the story, but learn to tell your story to the right person. Reach out to someone you trust. Empathy is the antidote to shame. Shame cannot survive in empathy. And the thing about it is, Jesus empathizes with us because he was fully human. So he knows what it is to deal with every element of shame that you and I have had to walk through. He knows what it is to feel betrayed, rejected, hurt, all of that sort of stuff, unlistened to, unloved, closest ones to him, betraying him. He knows what all of that feels like. So he is the ultimate one who can empathize with our situation and what we're dealing with in the shame arena. And the, as I mentioned before, the two most powerful words in the struggle with shame and empathizing with somebody is me too. Me too. I know how that feels. Or it gets how, it's like me too. And so... That whole sense of the Me Too campaign is like, I love the, the empathy that we're destroying the power that shame has. Empathy is a linchpin of a culture built on connection and trust. You know, if we have a culture in the life of our church that's built on connection and trust, uh, empathy is the thing that holds all that together. We've heard it said before that relationships move at the speed of trust and we need to know what it is to, to trust each other and one another and uh, you know empathy doesn't give us a uh, one-upmanship or anything like that it, it, it brings us alongside and entering into people's pain with them empathy is not connecting to an experience but connecting to the emotions that underpin the experience 
Well, I haven't, and it's like, I haven't been divorced, but I can certainly understand how painful that must feel for people who have. And so I'm not judgmental about it at all. I just want to be able to help people not carry the shame of some of those kind of experiences that may be holding people captive. And that's just one example. Another thing we can do to break shame is to forgive every person who has hurt you and helped produce shame in your life. If people have produced shame in your life, forgive them. And I know that's easy to say, but actually really difficult to do. But here we're talking about the crux of what it is to be a Christian and to be restored from shame. Here's another thing that we can do, and I'll touch a little bit more on that in a moment. Another thing we can do is take responsibility for our behavior and don't blame others. If we take responsibility for our behavior, rather, you know, the interesting thing is that Adam blamed Eve for eating the apple. Eve blamed the devil for making her do it. The truth is, Adam and Eve both told the truth. They were both right. And yet, that's not the issue. They were, try- they were not accepting responsibility. Adam should have said, you know what, I shouldn't have... No, uh, not that I shouldn't have listened to my wife, but you've got to be careful. But it's like, maybe I'll take the alternative option or whatever. But the thing about it is, you know, we want to blame our parents. We want to blame the government. We want to blame the schools. We want to blame everybody else other than accepting responsibility for ourselves. <clears throat> if we're blaming somebody else, we're not accessing the only scapegoat that's available to us, that is Jesus. Let's blame him. <laughs> Second Corinthians 4 says this, We have renounced the hidden things of shame. I love that scripture because it's so empowering. And, and it actually, um, we've renounced the hidden things of shame. I'm going to accept the fact that, I, uh, that there's certain things of shame in my life, but I'm renouncing them. I'm actually going to prayerfully before God just renounce these hidden things of shame and break the power of them. And that's all part of the supernatural element of what we're talking about here. Here's another thing um, that we can do. Believe you have been forgiven and that sin and shame have been removed by Jesus. If we actually don't think we've been forgiven and that we're still walking in the sin and shame, we're missing the point. In 1 John 1, 1.9, it says this, If we can own up to our sins, God shows us that He is faithful and just by forgiving us of our sin and us, purifying us from the pollution of all the bad things we have done. I love that. I want to be purified from the pollution of all the bad things that I've done and that have been done to me. And if that reality becomes something that I live out of, that's going to be a very, very empowering thing. The thing about it is, God has the ability to forget. We don't. We can forgive, but we don't forget. The amazing thing about God is He forgives and He forgets. And it's kind of like, that's a conundrum to me. How can God, who knows everything, forget? But it's the truth of it. The devil doesn't forget. He reminds us all the time. He's accusing us relentlessly. Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. 
And then in Isaiah 43, 25 and 26, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. He doesn't remember what you did yesterday. He doesn't remember the stinking attitude you had when you walked through the doors into church this morning. He doesn't remember that. It's blotted out. So if we can walk in the reality that when we're walking with Jesus under the blood of Jesus, that the scapegoat blood of Jesus, that he doesn't remember our sin. So we should not remember them either. We should forget. We should repent, which we talked about last month. Repent and move on and forgive others who have affected us. And that becomes, this is simple but deep. It's, it's kind of profound, but it's the linchpin of how we're going to move forward in the, in, in the sense of new sense of freedom. So I will not remember your sin. Shame is about containing us in our sin, and God sets us free from that. So what does it mean to never again be put to shame? Romans 1.16 I love this scripture. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You know, the world and the enemy would want us to be shameful about the fact that we are Christians. And it's like, wow, you just need a crutch. You just, you know, need this religion or whatever. I, I, I don't really care what people think i'm not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ because it's the power to break shame off my life it's the power to set people free and it's the power for you and i even when we feel like the whole weight of the world is on us that uh that we are saved that's salvation for us 2 timothy 1:12 says this that is why i am suffering as i am he was in prison and he'd been preaching the gospel. Yet this is no cause for shame. So even if we find ourselves under persecution or suffering in whatever situation we find ourselves, it's um, no cause for shame. There's no shame attached to that. It's like because I know whom I've believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What day is that? The great day of the Lord which is what Joel is talking about in many phrases in his book, that wonderful day when Christ returns. And so, you know, there's no cause for shame when we're standing with the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet the enemy would want to heap shame on us. And so we've entrusted. What have we entrusted to him? We've entrusted our lives, our future, our destiny, our relationships to him. And then Romans 5, 5 says this, and hope does not put us to shame. It's, it's, it's incredible. Because sometimes, you know, the enemy would say, are you really serious about this Christian thing? You can't be serious. Like, the hope that you, what, you're going to, you know, go to heaven. You're going to live eternally. Your sins are being forgiven. What's that all about? And yet the scripture here, hope does not put us to shame. And so there will be a day. You know, and, and I hope that anybody that I know or come across is not going to be standing back and watching as we are taken up into heaven and, and enjoying the, the, the ultimate outcome of our faith because hope does not put us to shame. And so, 
And I, and I look at it and I, I kind of think, you know, I see how God has restored elements of shame in my personal life over the years. And I know that even if it, I have to wait till kingdom come, hope does not put us to shame. And that's a very, very powerful truth. I know that you will not be put to shame if you hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the power of it. Our, power, our conversation around shame has started with the nakedness in the garden. And maybe our walk with shame has started with some, maybe your walk with shame has started with some kind of exposure or nakedness or inappropriateness or whatever the cause. But you know what? There's a promise in Colossians 2.14. says this, Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant concealed and nailed to Christ, sorry, cancelled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. So the nakedness of our shame will be victorious through the covering of the blood of Jesus and the enemy will be made a public spectacle of in his nakedness. And so for you, I want you to latch on to the truth that by virtue of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been restored from shame. And never again will you be put to shame. If you can apply and appropriate these truths of Scripture to your life, to your world, to your future, to your relationships, to your personal sense of worth and identity, you will never again be put to shame. Father, right now, I pray over every single person in this place that we would see ourselves covered by the blood of Jesus, the covering that protects us from shame. And that, Lord, we would never again be put to shame. Father, that silence the voices in our in our minds that tell us we are not worthy and that who do we think we are? Because we know we are worthy because Jesus is worthy and we know who we are because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray for those of us, Lord, that have been dealing and battling with shame for so long. Lord, I pray it would be broken off our lives even in this moment, God. There would be a sense of deliverance of freedom from the prison of shame. I thank you, God. I thank you, God, that the truth of your word, the power of Scripture setting people free. I thank you, Lord, that this day we would realize who we are in you, our worth in you, God. And I come against every spirit of shame, every demon of ac an accusation of shame, and I break its power in the name of Jesus. I silence its voice this morning. And I pray, Lord, that in the echoes of our minds, we would hear the truth of your word, that you've forgotten our sin, you've forgotten our shame, and that you have restored us from the things that the enemy has stolen from us all those years that he's held us captive. I thank you, God, that today, this moment, is powerful for each and every one of us as we walk free, 
restored from shame and ready to do what you've called us to do. Father, I thank you. I pray that this place, our church community here, our faith community, would be a place where empathy brings healing and release for people. I pray, Lord, it's a place where we can safely share our stories without fear of judgment or retribution. Because, Lord, you've paid the price. And I pray, God, tonight, today, in this moment, God, the power and the reality of being set free from the scourge of shame will be truth for each and every one of us as we release, as we uh, leave this place today. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I thank you, God. The hope that we have in you will not result in shame. I thank you. The hope we have in you results in us moving forward and making a difference, changing Canberra, impacting Australia, touching the world, making disciples, seeing lives transformed by the power of God. This is the power that we're talking about, seeing people restored from shame. Lord, I thank you for healing our nakedness and our vulnerabilities, God. Today, this moment, shifts happening for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If, um, if you would like prayer this morning around what we've been talking about, uh, we're going to have a couple of our prayer team here. Deb and I will be around. Some of the other pastors love to pray for you. If you just feel you'd like just a sense of that shame being broken off just an affirmation of that and um, I just want to encourage you leave this place different because you've left your shame at the foot of the cross this morning Amen God bless you let's give the Lord a, a clap offering this morning as we appreciate the word Thanks for listening to today's message. If you have any prayer needs, email prayer at c3monash.org.au or connect with us online.